continue in the book of Daniel, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Daniel 3. Daniel chapter 3. It's a rather lengthy chapter. I do nonetheless want to read the entire chapter. Daniel 3. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall bow down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have said over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the image which I have made. Good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery 
furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So far, the reading. God's holy word. He was one of the important forerunners of the Reformation and used mightily of the Lord. John Haas of Bohemia was 26 years old when he became a priest and professor of divinity at the University of Prague. He was dedicated to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. But in God's gracious providence, he received some of the writings of John Wycliffe. His curiosity was aroused, and Huss began to study the Bible. He soon discovered that Wycliffe was right in his criticisms of the Roman Church. As he studied the Bible, he also became troubled by his own sins, and he continued to read both the Scriptures and the writings of Wycliffe in search of a solution. The Holy Spirit opened his eyes and he trusted the sacrifice of Jesus. During this time of awakening, someone gave Huss two cartoons that he thought were rather revealing. One of them portrayed the Lord Jesus wearing the crown of thorns and the Pope wearing a crown of gold and clothing of rich purple and silk. The other cartoon was of the woman to whom Jesus said, Your sins are are forgiven. And on its reverse side, the Pope was depicted selling indulgences to the people. The message which those cartoons proclaimed convinced Haas that reformation was needed. In his preaching, he began to expose the superstitions of the church and the sins of the clergy, and he fiercely attacked the doctrine of papal authority. Many were persuaded by his words. The Archbishop of Prague, however, opposed Haas and denounced his and Wycliffe's books. The books were collected, and with his own hand, the Archbishop of Prague set them on fire. Haas was then asked whether he was prepared to obey the Pope's commands. His reply was, yes. So far as they agree with the doctrine of Christ... But when I see the contrary, I will not obey them even though you burn my body. Even though you burn my body. He was prepared to go to the flames rather than submit to the unscriptural commandments of men. Brothers and sisters, 146 years after Haas, a man named Guido de Bray, a preacher of the Reformed churches of the Netherlands, drew up what we now know as the Belgic Confession. 
A copy of the confession was sent to Philip II together with a preface which stated that those who subscribed to the confession would obey the government in all things lawful, but that they would offer their backs to stripes, their tongues to knives, their mouths to gags, and their whole bodies to the fire rather than deny the truths expressed therein. As you read church history, you could find many more illustrations in which such convictions were expressed. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Read about Ignatius, Polycarp, John Bradford, and many, many others. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you this morning that while being a Christian is an immense blessing, it can also create immense challenges. We are living in spiritually turbulent times. As our nation continues to depart from biblical values, we can expect increased hostility against the Christian faith. It is not easy to confess our faith in a hostile environment, in an environment in which so many around us are either ignorant of God's truth, indifferent to it, or rejecting it. We don't know what the future holds, And we don't know what the cost may be for heeding the call to faithfully follow Christ. But the only way we can persevere is by the strength and presence of the Spirit of God. In our scripture reading for this morning, we see that the Jews in Babylon were also living in spiritually turbulent times. However, at a time of apostasy and compromise in Judah, Daniel's three friends remained true to God. I've divided this chapter into three parts. The king's ungodly defiance in verses 1 through 7, the king's unwavering servants in verses 8 to 18, and the king's unsettling defeat in verses 19 to 30. Our chapter begins by revealing to us the ungodly and foolish defiance of King Nebuchadnezzar. What did he do? Well, he set up a great golden statue on the plain of Dura. Verse 1 says that it was an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. Although the cubit varied somewhat from nation to nation, it was usually close to 20 inches. That means that the image was about 100 feet high. I suspect that's about the height of some of the silos that used to more commonly dot the landscape. It was an enormous statue which required a tremendous amount of gold. Nebuchadnezzar spared no expense. Now, brothers and sisters, why did the king make this image? And why did he make it specifically out of gold? To understand the king's actions, we need to bring our minds back to the previous chapter. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of a statue. It was made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and iron mixed with clay. In Daniel's interpretation of the dream, the head of gold represented the magnificent kingdom of Babylon. The chest and arms of silver represented the Medo-Persian Empire. The belly and thighs of bronze represented the Greek Empire. And the legs and feet of iron represented the kingdom of the Romans. In his dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a stone cut out without hands which struck the image and broke it in pieces. We saw that the stone represented Jesus Christ who will strike and destroy the kingdoms of this world. Just as the stone grew and became a great mountain that filled the whole earth, so the kingdom of Christ will fill the whole earth and it will never be destroyed. Following Daniel's interpretation of the dream, Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face before him. He also confessed Daniel's God to be the supreme Lord. However, shortly after the events recorded in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar decided to resist God's revelation to him. Instead of humbly submitting to Daniel's God, he foolishly decided to defy Daniel's God. Congregation, 
The image of gold set up in the plain of Dura was not merely a work of art designed to beautify Babylon. It represented the evil intents of Nebuchadnezzar's heart. The image stood in direct defiance of God's revelation. Why do I say that? Well, please notice what Nebuchadnezzar did. The image which he set up in the plain of Dura was entirely of gold. There was no silver or no bronze, no iron or clay. By setting up this golden image, Nebuchadnezzar was declaring, no other kingdom will overthrow the kingdom of Babylon. This great Babylon that I have built will endure forever. The gigantic image represented his determination for the future. Not only was the head made of gold, it was all of gold. Nebuchadnezzar was saying in effect, I will not allow the Lord to overthrow my kingdom. Do you see the foolish and ungodly defiance of Nebuchadnezzar? By setting up the image, he was deliberately opposing the word of God as it had been revealed through Daniel. And then, as a further demonstration of defiance, verses 2 through 7 record how the king called together all the different leaders of the provinces for a great worship service to dedicate the golden image. He gathered together the educated, the rich, the influential people, and instructed them regarding the order of worship. Go to verse 4. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. No doubt the king had the finest musicians in the land selected for this glorious occasion. Again, he spared no expense. It must have been a spectacular display of the glory of Babylon and its king. Those who were invited to the ceremony did what they were told to do. When the music began, they fell down and worshipped the gold image. The people who bowed down were as senseless as the image. The people who bowed down were as senseless as the image. To secure obedience to his decree, Nebuchadnezzar had threatened that whoever did not fall down and worship would be immediately cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar would prove to all the people that the power of life and death was in his hands. He was God. The image represented him and his kingdom. Those who were called to bow before the image were really bowing before Nebuchadnezzar. All the people lined up on the plain of Dura were not merely summoned to worship a gold image. They were summoned so that they might show their allegiance to the kingdom of man, the kingdom of this world, Babylon. The worship to which they were called was man-centered, not God-honoring. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1, they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Nebuchadnezzar's conduct proves that while he was momentarily humbled and convicted by Daniel's interpretation of his dream at the conclusion of chapter 2, while he confessed Daniel's God to be the God of gods, the Lord of kings, while he momentarily appeared to be a changed man, Nebuchadnezzar was not truly converted. Conviction, but not conversion. Challenged, but not changed. How many people today are like that? They've heard the word. They've heard what Scripture says about the sovereignty of God. 
They've heard about his coming judgment. They've heard about the eternal kingdom of Christ. They've been challenged by the message. Perhaps they've even had some kind of religious experience. But it doesn't stick. It doesn't stick. Time passes, and they go their merry way, doing their own thing, worshiping small g gods, or worshiping themselves. Hopefully, hopefully there is no one like that here today. Nebuchadnezzar experienced a temporary spiritual diversion, but was still a stranger to true conversion. So that's point number one, the king's ungodly defiance. Secondly, We also see here the king's unwavering servants. The king's unwavering servants. Everyone, everyone must bow before the image. But brothers and sisters, while all the leading people of Babylon were bowing down, there were three young men who remained standing. Three young Jews. Daniel, for some reason, was not present at this dedication service. Perhaps he had been given work in another part of the empire, or perhaps the king intentionally excluded him, lest his presence trouble the king's conscience. Whatever the case, Daniel does not appear in this incident. He probably wasn't in Babylon at the time. Therefore, his three companions had to face the situation without him. The trouble began for these men when certain Chaldeans came forward and laid charges against them. They told the king that three Jews were defying the king's decree. Why did they present this accusation? Why did they present this accusation? Was it out of love for their king? Was it out of respect for the king's decree? Was it out of respect for the gold image? Why the accusation? Although we are not specifically told, I suspect they were jealous. Jealousy is certainly found in chapter 6. These three Jews had been appointed as rulers. They had taken part in the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and were therefore promoted to positions of honor. The Chaldeans, magicians, astrologers, and sorcerers, on the other hand, were humiliated and proven to be inferior to Daniel and his friends. The strong convictions of the three young Jews now provided the Chaldeans with an opportunity to accuse them. They understood the king's character well enough. They knew that he was a proud and arrogant man. The best way to provoke him was to mention the failure of the Hebrews to pay respect to his wishes. They knew that they were lighting the fuse which would set off an explosion. And sure enough, their tactics were successful. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. In a fit of anger, Nebuchadnezzar called the three young Hebrews before him and probed them for a confession. Keep reading at verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? There's no recorded answer to the question, but presumably the three defendants admitted that the charges against them were correct. Nebuchadnezzar then offered to give them a second chance. Verse 15. Now if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you? from my hands. It was an ultimatum. Bow or burn. Do or die. Now, congregation, 
Scripture calls us to honor those in authority over us. We read that earlier from Romans 13.1. There's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. But when the governing authorities command us to do what Scripture forbids, or forbid us from doing what Scripture requires, we are obligated to disobey. There are times when we cannot and may not obey. But consider the pressure that these men were under. They were only young men, just in the prime of their life. They were working as high officials in the province of Babylon. Their future seemed secure. All they had to do was just bow down for a few moments and nothing would be lost. The king would be satisfied and their life would go on as before. Why not just go along with the crowd? Everyone else was bowing before the image. Why not just go with the majority without causing a fuss? I'm sure that if we were in their shoes, we could probably come up with a list of good reasons to justify submission to the king's command. I can more profitably serve the Lord alive than dead. I can use my position of authority to advance the kingdom of God. If I die, my influence in Babylon would be over. If I only bow for a moment, just a moment, I can extend my godly influence for years to come. Besides, I wouldn't bow with my heart. I wouldn't truly worship the image. My true devotion would still be to God. In my heart, I would still be standing. You see, brothers and sisters, as fallen sinners, we have a natural ability to rationalize what God has forbidden, to find good excuses for compromise. Instead of determining our actions by biblical principles, we tend to shape the principles to accommodate for our actions. But these three young men didn't do that. We don't know their inner struggles. We don't know what went through their minds. But we do know that they refused to submit to the king's demand. Now, congregation... Let me remind you for a moment that the test with which these men were confronted is really the test that believers face throughout their earthly pilgrimage. The problem that confronted them is the problem that confronts every follower of the true God. No, I don't mean that every Christian will face the sentence of death for refusing to do an evil thing. What I mean is this. Every Christian will find himself or herself in situations where he or she is pressured to disobey the clear teachings of the Bible. You will be pressured by students in your school. You will be pressured by people at work. You will be pressured in your job. You will be pressured at unexpected times. Every time you find yourself in a situation in which you are coerced to do something that you know violates Scripture, your situation is like that of these three young men. Your responsibility before God is to do what is right regardless of the cost. We ought to be very careful that we do not bow before the demands of the world, even if the consequences are hard to bear. But you say, everyone else is doing it. How can it be wrong? Dear friends, thousands may be bowing, but that doesn't make it right. All your fellow students are doing it. All the guys at work, all your business associates, all your friends may be doing it, but that doesn't make it acceptable. Nebuchadnezzar demanded that these three men compromise the first and second commandments of the law. But in verses 16 through 18, we hear their confession of faith. 
It is a response that ought to send chills up your spine because, brothers and sisters, it's the kind of loyalty and faith that the Lord is calling you to as well. They said to Nebuchadnezzar, the great and powerful monarch, we're not going to bow. We're going to trust God. He will deliver us. And if he decides not to deliver us, we're still going to trust him. Where do these men find the strength to confess their faith in the crucible? Notice three things that God used to sustain them in this trial, okay? Three things. In the first place, they knew the requirements of Scripture. They knew the requirements of Scripture. Their refusal to bow was not because they were stubborn and disagreeable. Rather, it was because they knew that God had forbidden it in His Word. They understood that the commandments of God were not negotiable. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. These young men were kept from sin because the word of God directed their steps. Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Young men, young men, it is your knowledge of and commitment to the requirements of Scripture that keeps you from sin. Not all moral issues are necessarily black and white, and therefore you need to be grounded in the word so that you do not compromise in your daily decisions. Young men, are you using the means available to you to be firmly rooted in the word? Are you faithful in your own Bible reading, and do you put yourself under faithful teaching? It was good to see some young men at the the study yesterday. I commend you. Put yourself under the teaching of God's Word, and it will assist you in remaining faithful in all areas of life. Secondly, these young men remained faithful not only because they knew the requirements of Scripture, but also because they trusted the power of their God. They trusted the power of their God. The end of verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar directly challenged the ability of their God. What did he say to them? And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Nebuchadnezzar was implying that the power of the fire was greater than the power of Yahweh. But the Hebrew believers were not intimidated by his arrogance. In verse 16, they replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. These men not only trusted the power of God in a general sense, But they trusted specifically that he was able to do what was contrary to nature, namely, to deliver men from fire. They believed that the impossible was possible because God is sovereign. Then thirdly, they knew the requirements of Scripture. They trusted the power of their God. And they believed that death was better than disobedience. They believed that death was better than disobedience. Look with me to verse 18. But if not, even if God does not deliver us, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. They were willing to pay the ultimate price of obedience. They were confident that God was able to deliver from the furnace. But if he, in his good pleasure, decided not to deliver them, they were content to submit to God's will. 
Their attitude was similar to that of the Apostle Paul, who desired that Christ be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. They were content with whatever God had in store for them. Death was better than disobedience. Congregation, perhaps by God's mercy, you will never face a choice between compromise or execution. Although the way our nation has been moving, it is very possible that we or our children will face that choice. But even if you are not confronted with such a decision, you will undoubtedly have a price to pay if you stand firm upon biblical principles. You may not lose your life, but you may lose friends. You may lose a job. You may lose popularity. You may lose the esteem of others. But as these three Hebrews, you must believe, fully be persuaded in your heart that death is better than disobedience. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, we come then thirdly from the king's ungodly defiance, the king's unwavering servants, to the king's unsettling defeat. The king's unsettling defeat defeat. Nebuchadnezzar was certainly not impressed by the faith of these young men. Verse 19 says he was what? Children? Full of fury. And the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. The king was beside himself with anger. He was as hot as the furnace. How dare these young Jews disobey his orders? Insolent young men. He would show them once and for all that he was sovereign. He would use them as a lesson for the nation that no one defied the king and lived. They would not see the light of a new day. Nebuchadnezzar commanded some of his high-ranking soldiers to bind the three Hebrews and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. What a picture this is of Christian testing. The odds against them were overwhelming. No way of escape. The demand was worship or die, bow or burn. Yet in the face of death, the three young men held their ground. Samuel Rutherford said, duties are ours, events are the Lord's. Duties are ours, events are the Lord's. In other words, it is our task to be faithful, and it is God's task to decide in His good providence how He is going to work out the consequences. Brothers and sisters, You can imagine that the Chaldeans who first brought the charge against them found it difficult to hide their amusement. No doubt they were very pleased. However, as they watched the execution, they witnessed something that no one had anticipated. Those who were appointed to bring them to the flames were burnt alive by the unbearable heat. And in a miraculous way, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not touched by the flames. When all seemed to be lost, God vindicated them and confirmed them as servants of the Most High God. There's an interesting passage that was written by the prophet Isaiah as a promise to the people of God who were destined for exile. Maybe your mind has already been going there. Listen to the words of Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you, for I am the Lord your God. These words were quite literally fulfilled in this fiery trial. Out of love for his servants, And for his own glory, the Lord protected them in the flames. The consequence appeared to be certain death, but God overruled. 
As Nebuchadnezzar observed the situation, he was filled with consternation. Look with me in your Bibles to verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God, godlike. The king was astonished. Now, brothers and sisters, much has been written on the identity of the fourth figure. It has been discussed and debated throughout the ages. Some have said that the fourth person was Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate form, a Christophany, that is, an Old Testament appearance of Christ. John Calvin believed that it was the Son of God whom Nebuchadnezzar could not recognize because of the blindness caused by his many errors. I'm inclined to believe that as well. Ordinarily, when God makes an appearance, theophany, it is the second person of the Trinity. One theologian said, Then, as now, Christ often meets his people most profoundly in the furnace experiences of life. Then, As now, Christ often meets his people most profoundly in the furnace experiences of life. However, there are others who have said that the fourth person was an angelic figure. In verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar refers to him as an angel sent by God. Although the Bible does not give us a direct explanation of what this pagan king witnessed, the point is... God preserved them in the flames. He intervened and was with them in this fiery trial. The furious demands of Nebuchadnezzar were nothing but empty words. God was proving to him who the true sovereign was. In congregation, this is a vivid reminder to us of the fact that God stands with his people in the midst of their trials, fears, troubles, and tribulations. Not a hair can fall from your head without the will of your heavenly Father, a wonderful comfort. The fiery trial of these men should be a reminder to us that in the fiery trials of our Christian experience, in whatever form those trials may be, God will be with you. That doesn't mean that God will always deliver you. There have been many Christians in the past who have perished in the flames. On July 6, 1415, John Huss was burned at the stake. But even then, The Lord is near, giving grace to endure. There are accounts of Christians in the first century who sang in the flames until the Lord received them into glory. No, the Lord does not always deliver from the flames, but he does stand by his people in every trial. That can be your confidence as you live out your commitment to Jesus Christ. God sometimes uses trials to produce more abundant fruit in the lives of his people. Calvin said, The church of Christ has been so constituted from the beginning that death has been the way to life and that the way of the cross is the path to victory. The church of Christ has been so constituted from the beginning that death has been the way to life and that the way of the cross is the path to victory. God sometimes uses the crucible to produce men, women, and children of strong Christian character. And so, brothers and sisters, this chapter concludes in a way that most people would not expect The three prisoners were at peace, and the mighty monarch was astonished and defeated. Realizing that the men were not going to die, he went to the mouth of the fiery furnace and called them to come out. 
Notice how he addressed them in verse 26. Servants of the Most High God. The fact that they survived the fiery furnace proved that their God was superior to all others. Their God stood above Nebuchadnezzar and the gold image that he had set up. When the three men emerged from the furnace, all the king's men gathered around them and they saw that their hair had not been singed, their garments were not scorched, and the smell of fire was not on them. They prodded them and sniffed them. They got to detect absolutely no negative effects from the flames. It was like an invisible shield had surrounded them in the blazing furnace. Nebuchadnezzar was so impressed that he blessed the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But congregation, hear this. He was not impressed enough to trust and serve the God of the Hebrews, the God who promised to send a Savior. Yes, he made a decree that anyone who spoke against this God would be cut in pieces and their houses made an ash heap. He confessed that there's no other God who can deliver like this. He promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. But when all was said and done, Nebuchadnezzar remained unchanged. He was forced to admit defeat, but there was no deep spiritual change in him as we will see in the next chapter. The best thing that he could have done at this point was to grind the gold image to powder as a sign of true humility and repentance. But chapter 4 would lead us to believe that the gold image probably remained standing in the plain of Dura for some time. Even though Nebuchadnezzar was defeated, he was not prepared to surrender to the God of the Hebrews, the God of salvation. What we see in this chapter, dear friends, is the vast difference that there is between the sons of God and the sons of this world, children of light and children of darkness. While the three Hebrews were willing to give their lives for the sake of their commitment to God, Nebuchadnezzar remained committed to his own kingdom, the kingdom of man. Congregation, may God give you grace to walk as children of light, as committed servants who love Jesus Christ. As we experience trials that come in various forms, let us look to our Heavenly Father and let us stand by God's grace without compromise. Let us stand with unbowed heads, not yielding to the pressure, and let us declare that the God whom we serve is the Most High God, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. And when you fail, and when you fail, when you foolishly yield to the pressure, when you sinfully follow the wayward crowd, don't despair. Rather, turn to the one who faced the most terrifying of all fires. Jesus endured the burning wrath of God. He faced the ultimate flames for you so that you can enter God's holy presence unscathed without so much as the smell of fire upon you. And then having trusted His mercy and grace, and having believed that he endured the ultimate fiery furnace at Calvary in your place, look to him for strength to confess your faith in these turbulent times. Jesus said, Whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. By the Spirit's power, confess your faith in Jesus Christ, and He will confess you 
before the Father. What a wonderful thought. Let us pray. Lord our God, we have to confess with shame that there are times when we do bow, as it were, when we do follow the crowd, when we fail to confess your name, when we do what everyone else is doing. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to face the consequences. We look to you for forgiveness. We look to the one who bore that incomprehensible wrath the flames of your righteous indignation so that we may be entirely forgiven and that we may stand in your holy presence. Lord, we praise you for that because we know that we don't always stand as Daniel's three friends did at this particular moment in history. We often capitulate. But Lord, we pray that knowing the forgiving grace of Christ, we would desire to live our lives in such a way that we are wholly committed to Christ Jesus, unashamed. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make us men, women, and children of the Word, that we would, Lord, be able to apply your word to the difficult, challenging, moral questions of life. That we too, Lord, would, would trust your power, knowing that you are able to work in the midst of our circumstances to bring about good. And may we believe, truly believe, that death is better than disobedience. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord, apply these truths to our heart. As we conclude this service, may we offer our praises to you. And again, Lord, express our gratitude for the one who never compromised, who never went with the crowd, the one who never capitulated, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.